I'm Amanda Olberg, Managing Editor of Education Next. We invite you to join this week's Education Next podcast, available online Wednesday morning each week at educationnext.org. Paul Tuff is a journalist with a unique gift for anticipating the most pressing questions facing the field of education. His first book, Whatever It Takes, examined how neighborhoods affect student outcomes through the lens of the life work of Jeffrey Canada, founder of the Harlem Children's Zone. Initiatives modeled on the zone were soon proliferating nationwide. His second book, How Children Succeed, looked at the mindsets and skills children need to excel in school and life that are not directly captured by standardized tests, anticipating and, I would argue, helping to drive the current enthusiasm for teaching so-called non-cognitive skills. Now he's back with Helping Children Succeed, a book that proposes a new way of thinking about non-cognitive skills and how parents, educators, and policymakers can help all children develop them. I'm Marty West, Executive Editor of Education Next, and I'm excited to be able to welcome Paul Tuff to our weekly podcast. In addition to writing books, Paul is a contributing writer to the New York Times Magazine and a regular contributor to This American Life. You can find a review of Paul's new book, Helping Children Succeed, on the journal's website, educationnext.org. Paul, thanks for taking the time to talk with us today. Thank you for having me. So let me start off by asking what led you to write this book. Uh, well, I think this book really has its roots in, in my last book, How Children Succeed. And after that book came out and I went around and spoke about it to, to different groups, especially groups of, of practitioners, people who were working directly with kids, and especially kids who were growing up in uh, poverty or other difficult circumstances, I found that the, the question I would get from those people was like, this research is interesting, but what do we do now that we know all this research about the importance of um, these non-cognitive capacities? What do we do to actually help uh, kids, and especially kids who are growing up in, in, in adversity, to succeed? And so uh, I set out to write something that was um, you know, shorter and more uh, accessible and more practical than what I had written before. Um, so rather than, than a work of narrative nonfiction with lots of stories and characters, something that, that would try to distill all of the research about what uh, kids who are growing up in poverty need in order to succeed um, and turn it into something that my hope was um, teachers and uh, mentors and child care workers and also policymakers and philanthropists could use to guide their practice. And since it's a term that's used in so many different ways, we should probably take a minute and just ask you to say what it is that you mean when you use the word non-cognitive capacities. What skills, mindsets, habits do you have in mind? Sure. So, so part of what I uh, went through in the process of writing this, this new book was, was rethinking a lot of my um, understanding of that term. I know it's a term that you've uh, spent a lot of time studying and thinking about as well. Um, and, and I think the reason that both of us have spent a lot of time thinking about it is that it is a realm of human experience that we have not yet, you know, I think had a lot of success at, at, at putting into the kind of terms that we use in education or in journalism. Um, and so a, a lot of, I think, where um, the push has been uh, in, in this non-cognitive realm, and, and I think the way that I helped push things in How Children Succeed was toward trying to identify and uh, label and define certain skills, things like grit and self-control, conscientiousness, uh, optimism, curiosity, trying to parse the, the sort of fine distinctions between those different skills uh, and figure out what exactly we need to do to help kids get better at them. So, uh, but the, the research that 
guided my thinking in this new book, Helping Children Succeed, um, was suggesting that, that taking that premise uh, of, of trying to teach kids these skills as if we were teaching them math or reading or anything else um, doesn't seem to be the most effective way to help kids develop them. And instead, the, 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 the principle that, that I, that, that makes more sense to me now and that I wrote about in, in this new book um, is that these qualities in kids are much more the the product of the environment in which they are growing up. And that's certainly true in early childhood in terms of home uh, environments, but I think it's also true in the classroom. A lot of the research about student psychology and motivation and mindset suggests that the, the real impact have on these uh, qualities or tendencies or habits in their students is uh, has more to do with the uh, the mood, the climate, the context of the classroom that they create, rather than specific lessons that they give kids in any of these skills. Yes. Yeah, so uh, one possible response to this question of how educators should respond to evidence of the importance of non-cognitive skills is that they should just teach them. But you note that many of the educators that you see as most effective in fostering the development of non-cognitive skills hardly mention the terms explicitly at all. Yeah, that was something that that was 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 present in my last book, How Children Succeed, but which I didn't really uh, focus on until after the book had come out. That so I had I had a chapter in my book where I talked about some educators who were um, you know really trying to label and name and teach these skills specifically. Uh, but then I had another chapter about uh, a teacher, a chess teacher uh, named Elizabeth Spiegel, who um, I included because I thought that she was sort of working in this non-cognitive realm, and I thought there was something in the way that she was teaching that indicated uh, how big an effect certain styles of teaching can have on, on children's success, and especially um, poor children's success. Um, but it was only afterward that I realized that, you know, for, for all the degree to which I used her as an example of, uh, of teachers teaching character strengths or non-cognitive skills, she didn't think of herself that way at all. She thought of herself as, as someone teaching chess. Um, and that pushed me toward trying to think more about how that process of just good teaching, uh, really challenging kids, pushing them with rigor, uh, creating the right kind of moods and mindsets in, in them and in the classroom um, that make them believe that they can succeed and want to succeed, um, how that shapes kids in these dimensions that we uh, have come to call non-cognitive skills and makes them act more perseverant, uh, persist for longer, bounce back better from disappointments. Um, even if we might not be able to measure their grit or their self-control or their resilience, they're certainly acting the way that, that character-focused educators want students to act. So the big idea in the book, the really the new paradigm that you're trying to put forward, is that it's more accurate to look at these skills as products of the child's environment rather than uh, something that's taught explicitly. So perhaps you could tell us a bit about what aspects of the child's environment, whether it be at home or at school, you think are most important? Sure. So one thing that I'm trying to do in this book is pull together these two bodies of research that I think um, are very much connected and need to be connected, uh, but don't often get talked about in the same um, conferences and, and, and sort of academic circles. And one is the neurobiological research about the effect of uh, early environments on children's capacities in all sorts of ways, but especially on the development of their stress response system. Um, so this, this is a, a realm that I wrote a little bit about in um, How Children Succeed, but ha went back to that research and discovered ways in which it has uh, grown and uh, become more clear. 
Uh, and it is really, really um, powerfully clear now that when kids grow up in environments that are uh, especially stressful, um, that are chaotic and unstable the way a lot of low-income kids, though by no means all of them, are growing up, that um, that it affects this system, this, this uh, stress response system that links together our brains and our immune systems and our uh, endocrine systems that control our stress, uh, the glands that produce stress hormones, um, and, and that that system adapts. In some ways, it's like this thermostat for adversity. It looks for clues in the environment um, to suggest whether life is going to be hard or uh, easy, and then it makes adaptations in children's brains and bodies to prepare them for the life that it perceives is going to uh, uh, be ahead of that child. And there's lots of ways in which those adaptations make sense if you're living in a dangerous environment. But what researchers are discovering is that those adaptations are, are really um, bad in school. You know, they're, just, they're not helpful at all. They make kids much more uh, wary and suspicious. They often have a harder time concentrating, focusing for long periods of time um, on, uh, on one subject. Um, it's hard, harder for them to manage their thoughts and manage their emotions. Um, and this makes it really hard to make it through a day of kindergarten, let alone a day of high school. And yet, all of that research, you know, it, it, it's something that does get talked about more than it used to in early childhood circles. It's not something, in my experience, that gets talked about in middle schools very much. Um, but in fact, I think it is a big reason why so many kids who grow up in stressful uh, communities and homes are struggling in middle school. Um, so part of what I'm trying to do is to, to push uh, teachers to uh, and educators in the K-12 sphere to look at this research and, and start thinking about not only how we can intervene better in the early years, but how we can reflect that in the later years. Um, and then the second body of research that I'm trying to connect to that is this growing body of, uh, of work about motivations and mindsets uh, that suggest that one of the things that teachers do as they are teaching is through often um, implicit and subtle uh, cues, they are they are uh, creating an environment in the classroom that, that um, psychologically make a big difference to kids in general, but especially kids uh, who, who, kids from poverty or kids who are um, uh, experiencing a lot of anxiety about their ability to keep up. Um, you know, some of, the, some of this research that uh, people like Jeffrey Cohen and Gregory Walton and David Yeager have done suggesting that little phrases and cues from um, teachers can make a huge difference in how motivated uh, students are to um, participate and work hard and persevere. Um, and again, that was something that I, I, I sort of saw anecdotally from Elizabeth Spiegel, this chess teacher, uh, the ways that she talked to her students, the messages that she sent them about their ability to, um, to do well. Uh, those were clearly having a big impact on their, um, on their work. But what these researchers are doing are, is starting anyway to give us a sense of what that might look like, what we can actually tell teachers that they can do differently in order to create that kind of environment in the classroom. So this synthesis, which I think is really unique and valuable, pushes you in a couple of different directions. One is to talk about strategies that we can use before the uh, kindergarten years uh, to try to, um, I guess, ensure that students uh, are not impacted by stress in the ways that you uh, make a case are so uh, damaging. And in the early childhood space, you note the importance of pre-K for disadvantaged students in particular, but you talk about how uh, it may be that rather than working to expand pre-K, we might, uh, I guess, 
uh, do better by investing more in the early years? Yes. So, um, uh, I mean, I think pre-K is a good thing, uh, especially for low-income kids, and I think we need more of it and better pre-K. Uh, but it's also true, a statistic I didn't know until I started the reporting on this book, that um, of the money that we spend as a country on uh, early childhood, 94% of that money comes after children's third birthday, um, and only 6% goes to the first three years of children's lives. Um, and this is a strategy that makes sense if you're if you're focused just on you know the kind of reading and math skills that uh, that start to get taught in in three and four year old pre K, uh, but it doesn't make any sense if you care about the kind of um, you know non cognitive capacities uh, habits and tendencies that kids need in kindergarten. So much of that groundwork, the development of the stress response system that that uh, leads to some of these tendencies, happens in the first three years of life. And this is something um, that that you know neuroscience research has researchers have uh, really demonstrated very clearly in the last ten or twenty years. But our um, our public policy hasn't changed to uh, accommodate that information, and so, yeah, I, I don't want to. I don't want to take money away from pre-K because I don't think there's enough of it. But at the same time, there are these really innovative interventions in the first few years of life, often involving home visiting, often involving working directly with parents, um, that have remarkable effects on how kids uh, experience childhood. Um, and the indications are that those. Uh, changes have a big impact on how kids do in school. Of course, one of the challenges in that space is that many people are uncomfortable with direct government interventions trying to uh, influence people's parenting styles and choices. And so, you know, that may be one of the tensions that's holding back, uh, I guess, more activity in that space. I think that's true. I think there is there is sort of a, a resistance to getting government to, to be involved in in really early childhood. We have this image that those early years are entirely the province of uh, of the private family. Um, that said, the one place where I've never felt that resistance is from low-income parents themselves. Um, you know, some of my reporting, you mentioned my very first book, Whatever It Takes, about the Harlem Children's Zone, and, and a lot of my reporting for that book took place in this program that Jeff Canada ran called Baby College, um, which brought together uh, parents from central Harlem, um, of uh, expecting parents and, and parents of kids up to age three. Um, and those uh, those parents, you know, were so eager for information and connection and support. Um, and this was all before I was a parent. I became a parent as well. Now I have uh, a six-year-old and a one-year-old. And so I, I feel much more um, aware of how much help parents need, uh, you know, from whatever income class they're coming from. Um, and so I, I don't think there, there is resistance from the parents themselves to, uh, to giving parents more support and more connection in those early years. Um, I think there might be some sort of um, ideological or bureaucratic uh, uh, um, uh, inertia uh, against against providing that kind of support, but I don't think that it's coming from those low-income communities. So the second direction that your synthesis of research pushes you is to ask what schools can do, given that many students are going to enter having experienced adversity in their early childhood and, and may struggle for those reasons in demonstrating uh, the academic perseverance that they need to succeed. And you note that kindergarten marks a shift in the strategic landscape for educators and policymakers and that most kids start spending more of their waking hours in the care of teachers 
uh, than they do in the care of their parents. So, and really this relates to one of the themes of all of your work, which is just how much schools can accomplish given the role that out-of-school factors play in influencing student outcomes. So how much of a difference can schools make and uh, how can they become more effective? Um, I think schools can make a huge difference. Uh, you know, I, I think, right, there are these sort of two two arguments that I'm making that uh, might seem contradictory. One is that, you know, the early years are incredibly important, and when we don't give kids uh, the right kind of support in those early years, it becomes much more difficult for them to succeed in school, and that, I think, should push us toward thinking um, more intelligently about our early childhood policies. But at the same time, I also believe that, that uh, schools can do a great job of taking kids who are growing up in, in really difficult circumstances and uh, giving them much more opportunity. Um, and, and so the and, and I think that one of the best uh, levers, one of the best tools that schools have to, to, to make that happen, especially for kids who aren't getting the right kind of support in their early years, is to think about, it has to do with this non-cognitive realm, has to do with um, giving these students the, the connection and support that they need in order to feel motivated to um, to work hard in school to believe that they can succeed. Um, and, and the research that I draw on in this new book suggests that there are two sort of toolboxes that any given teacher or that a school or school system as a whole can use in order to influence um, that realm in kids' education. Uh, and one has to do with relationships, um, with making kids feel a sense of belonging and connection at school. Um, it sounds kind of touchy-feely, uh, but I think that there, there's you know really clear research that suggests that when kids feel that sense of connection and belonging at school, they work harder. You know, they 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 are much more motivated to do make the decisions and 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 take on the behaviors that are going to help them succeed academically, uh, and that a lot of how we organize our schools, especially our schools uh, that are educating a lot of kids who are growing up in poverty. Um, uh, th that doesn't make kids uh, feel a sense of belonging or connection, and in fact, it often undermines that. And then the second toolbox has to do with pedagogy, has to do with the work that kids do. Um, and and there, I feel like what the research suggests to me is that when we give kids really um, rigorous and challenging and meaningful work, um, they respond positively, even kids who are growing up, especially kids who are growing up in poverty, um, and that a lot of, I think, our approach with kids who are struggling or from struggling families is to go easy on them, you know, is to say, like, well, they can't handle the hard work. Um, and in many cases, it's absolutely true that they are behind academically. But the schools that are working with, with low-income kids that I've found most promising in this new um, wave of reporting that I did uh, are are really finding ways to, to push those kids outside of their comfort zone, to challenge them, uh, often using some of these deeper learning uh, qualities that you find in deeper learning schools, things like um, getting kids to work in groups, to work on uh, presentations um, and projects that sometimes take uh, weeks or months to, um, to create, uh, doing a lot of um, revision, multiple uh, iterations of any given piece of work that all of that uh, conveys to students, you know, not only is it, does it seem to be effective in helping them learn, you know, math or history or, or, or writing or whatever they're working on, but it also gives them this experience uh, of uh, trying something, not getting it right, 
trying it again, getting the right sort of support from you know classmates and teachers, uh, and seeing themselves get better at whatever they're doing, seeing them themselves be able to take a not very good product and turn it into a great product, and that is an experience that I think not many uh, low-income students are having right now in school, that not many students, period, in American public schools are having, um, and yet I feel like it is not only a good teaching strategy, it is also a good psychological strategy. It tends to make kids uh, take on mindsets and um, and beliefs about themselves that are going to make them work harder. They think, hey, I can do things that I didn't think that I could do. It's, it, it's, for me, it's, it's, it again gets back to what that chess teacher was doing, what was so effective in her teaching was that she was really pushing her students and, and going over their mistakes, um, you know, move by move, uh, sometimes kind of harshly, uh, but with, uh, with a lot of support as well. And when kids have that experience of seeing exactly what I did wrong and being able to correct it, I feel like that can be um, transformative psychologically for them. What happens to students when that environment changes, when they go off to college or they – why would we have any expectation that how we've helped students – succeed academically would then translate or carry over as they leave the school setting? Well, I, I, I think that I, I think it's a great question, uh, and I think that there are certainly a lot of schools that have, have succeeded in creating a good uh, uh, motivating environment in middle school and high school that, that then doesn't leave kids feeling empowered when they move on to college. Um, I do think, however, that these two two toolboxes that I'm talking about um, are likely to uh, to have lasting impacts on kids' psychology and motivation when they move forward. To start with the relationship toolbox, there's certainly a risk when when you are you know tr- creating a real sense of community and connection at school um, that when that community and connection is taken away, the kids will fall apart. Um, and so I think that you know, and I think that a lot of the, the uh, best uh, charter schools and small schools spend a lot of time thinking about this and trying to get it just right. Um, I think that there's a way to create. It's true in a family as well, right? There's a way to create a supportive environment that um, disables kids and makes them feel that they can only succeed in that supportive environment, and there's a way to create a a supportive environment that empowers kids and makes them feel like, um, you know, I can can accomplish a lot on my own. I think that has a lot to do with um, independence and autonomy, um, creating a a community where individuals are are responsible for for their own behavior and for their own learning. Um, So I think all of that has to be calibrated well, but I think it can definitely help. And then the second realm, the the, the sort of pedagogy challenge work toolbox. Um, I think that these uh, techniques that I'm talking about are absolutely something that will help kids moving forward when they've had the experience um, in middle school and high school of uh, working in groups, working on projects, um, uh, fixing work that wasn't right. Uh, That is not only sort of a helpful set of skills academically in college, but it also gives them um, a sense of uh, their own ability and their own possibility. And so when they hit that uh, freshman calculus course where they have no idea what's going on, um, they they both have some strategies, uh, but also have the confidence to say, like, okay, I've had this experience before where I didn't know what to do, and I didn't think I could do it, and I figured out how to get the right kind of help and the right kind of support, and I overcame it. So that's what I'm going to do this time. So it begins to sound then as if these are skills that can generalize from one setting to the next if they're fostered in the right way. Uh, and, and I think that's a nice way of, uh, of uh, showing how uh, these different approaches to thinking about it sort of converge in, in, in some ways. Um, 
So one of the things you don't talk about as much in this book as in your previous one, though you do mention the chess teacher in passing, is the role of extracurricular activities, either as part of or a supplement to school-based programming. It seems to me that activities like sports and the performing arts are one strategy that schools have traditionally used to help students develop perseverance, resilience, and social awareness. When I think about uh, parenting my own children, you know, I think they're learning a lot of uh, what they are learning in this area from their experiences as a little league pitcher, uh, you know, um, a as uh, much as they are in the classroom. Um, uh, is there a reason why that didn't get as much attention? Um, well, so I absolutely agree with you that I, I think I think lots of kids, lots of students are are learning those sorts of lessons from extracurriculars, and and so I think it's an important reason. Uh, I think that's, I hope that's going to continue. I think it's an important reason to keep those extracurriculars around. But I also think that that part of the reason why you know your kids or my kids or any other kids are, are having those experiences mostly in those extracurriculars is because we're not doing a good enough job of figuring out how to convey those same messages in the classroom. And if we can figure out, and, and I think some educators are doing a good job of, of, of pushing in this direction, if we can figure out how to give kids that same sense, that same growth mindset experience, that same experience of, um, you know, working as a team, overcoming obstacles in math class, um, I think that is really, that, that makes a, a huge difference. It changes the way they feel about, um, certainly about math, but I think about intellectual uh, activity and ability as well. Um, there, my, my, you know, I think the risk of having kids get all these lessons uh, only on the sports field and in chess class and in music class, or or you know, after-school orchestra um, is that uh, that they don't think that it generalizes. They're like, yeah, you know, I'm a sports person, I'm a music person, I'm a drama person, but math, uh, I just can't, you know, none of this applies in math class. Um, and so I, I think that the educators who are figuring out how to turn uh, academic classes into experiences uh, where kids have that kind of learning from failure, bouncing back from disappointment, um, persevering through difficult experiences, um, uh, that whole framework of experiences that so many kids get in uh, athletics and arts, uh, then I think uh, we're going to have a much more sort of coherent uh, message that we're giving to kids about their own possibilities. So you start off the book by noting the persistence, poss possibly even growing gaps in academic outcomes between children from rich and poor families, but then in reading the book, you almost start to get optimistic. Yes, our knowledge may be imperfect, but you document a variety of strategies that appear to be effective in minimizing, if not fully eliminating, the effects of childhood adversity. But then you conclude the book by emphasizing that the types of interventions you've been talking about are still quite rare, and that changing that will require that we change our policies, our practices, and our ways of thinking. I wonder if you could just briefly close by saying a little bit about what you have in mind in each of those areas. Sure. Um, yes, the book is an emotional roller coaster. <laughs> You're right, um, uh, and, and you know, it, it's a lot of how I how I feel about uh, the the possibilities for kids who are growing up in in, in difficulty right now. Um, there are, and, and certainly with, that was my experience writing this book uh, as well. There are you know, moments, and I've, I've had this throughout my career as an education journalist, there are moments uh, where you're reporting the stuff where, 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 you know, you can feel really optimistic about these new ideas and new approaches. 
but in the system as a whole, you know, things things are do, are not getting better, um, and so many of these most promising uh, approaches are not getting used. So yes, I, I, at the end of the book, I talk about these three ways that I think that we need to change uh, policy and practice, and just in the way that we think, um, and and. My hope is that those three things can change in um, in concert. Uh, you know that I don't think that it's enough to just try to have you know, top-down reform where policymakers are saying, "Okay, we're going to have all our schools look like this now." Um, I don't think it's enough to just put it all on teachers and say, you know, forget about what's happening at the district level or anywhere else. You guys just do these five things in the classroom, and everything's going to be fine. Um, and I don't think it's enough to just change the minds of regular uh, teachers and parents and and voters and citizens. Uh, but I think the goal is to do all those things at once, and that if um, regular uh, citizens, voters, property taxpayers, uh, parents are aware of this research, uh, and if they are pushing policy toward making the kind of you know significant changes um, like the ones we talked about in early childhood funding uh, that are going to provide better, um, stronger environments for more low-income kids, and then if that is, is being supplemented in the classroom by teachers who are really aware of this research and are trying to you know, figure out on a day-to-day -day basis how to create the right kind of messages, the right kind of environment in their classroom, I think we can, um, the research suggests that we can really change things for kids who are growing up in, in a difficult place. Um, it's a lot of work to change all those things at once. It's a lot of work to change one person's mind, uh, let alone the minds of all of the people who have to uh, play a role in that system. Um, but I think we've got to start. Well, let's leave it there on that uh, cautiously optimistic, I would say, note. And uh, thank you, Paul Tuff, for joining us today. Uh, Paul's new book is Helping Children Succeed, What Works and Why. Uh, you can find more information about it on our website, educationnext.org. Uh, Paul, congratulations on the book, and good luck with its release. Thank you so much. Thanks for the conversation. Thank you for tuning in to Education Next's weekly podcast, released every Wednesday morning. For more on education reform, visit us online, educationnext.org.